Well, good morning, family. Have you ever sensed that there's something more? Have you ever hoped to be a part of something bigger than yourself? Have you ever just wished or yearned or wanted there to be more? Maybe that's why when it's my turn to preach, they give me three books instead of one. Today we're, uh, we're starting, we're going through 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John, but don't worry, collectively they are seven chapters. So you've got a chapter of day to read for this week as we continue going through the, uh, the story, the journey, the, the books of the Bible. The nice thing about 1st through 3rd John is um, the same author, apostle of Jesus Christ, same time period written around 85 to 95 A.D., and uh, same subjects, same concerns, same topics. And so we're kind of going to be jumping around uh, all three books today, and I hope that's okay with you. Um, now, uh, just to share, the, we do have the Apostle John here. Before, if, back, way back when in the journey, he, uh, we, we studied his gospel. He wrote the Gospel of John. And this was a historical account for non-believers, and now we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and this is not a historical account, it's more of a commentary. It's more kind of a recap for believers in the churches. Now what happened is, in AD 70, there, there was the central church in Jerusalem, the central Christian church, and they would meet in the temple courts. The only problem is that the emperor and uh, the Roman Empire, they were tired of messing with the Jews. So what they do in 70 AD is they come in and they wipe out. They demolish the temple in Jerusalem. They wipe out uh, Jerusalem. And so what happens is that central church has to scatter. And so the Christians in that community, they scatter and they start setting up churches all over the world, in Asia and Africa and in parts of Europe. And so what John's doing at this time is he's writing a letter, probably from the church of Ephesus, which would be in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter, and it's supposed to be a circular letter, and to go around, actually all three are supposed to go around to all these scattered churches. And John has a sense of urgency. In fact, the first four verses, first four verses in 1 John chapter 1, in the Greek, which is the original translation, it's, it's all one big run-on sentence. He's just going, blah, 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 blah. Like, just got to get it out. It's kind of like he's got so much to tell them. It's so important. They have got to hear this. He is so concerned. It reminds me of when I turned 18, and I was on my way to college, to start my freshman year of college. I was, we were driving, it was about an eight-hour drive from Virginia, and we were driving to East Tennessee. Now, my dad, he had the family van packed to the hilt with all my junk, and, uh, And then I'm driving my 83 Nissan Sentra with a stick shift, great for mountains, and and my mom's in the passenger side, and and for eight hours, we talked, blah, 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 nonstop. You see, for mom, this was her chance. (laughs) Can't go anywhere. And we repacked, unpacked and repacked everything she had taught me, everything I had learned in the past 18 years, made sure I have it down. I mean, there was a sense of urgency. We went through my entire life in eight hours. 
and, and I'm a bit of an emotional driver, so there are times where we are laughing, and I'm speeding up, about to ram dad, and, and there are other times we're just crying, and I'm like backing off way in the distance, and my dad can't figure out what in the world's wrong, wrong with my car. Um, it's just me. And, uh, and that, that's kind of where John is. He's, he's just got the sense of urgency, like, here, you've got to hear this. And there's a reason there is urgency. So if you've got in your bulletin, you've got a little outline there. I'm going to give you some of the blanks. You see, there's two big lies that are facing the church. They're facing the church in John's day. And guess what? These two big lies, we're still facing them in the church today. And even outside the church today. I, I want to start off and, and just... Uh, just reading here, this is uh, uh, 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. He says it this way. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. There's deceivers in the church. People who call themselves Christians, but they're teaching something that's not very Christian. Uh, back then it came out of this, uh, this whole philosophy called Gnosticism. It came from the Greek word genosko, which meant to know. There are eight different words to know in the Greek language, but this one talked about intimate knowledge. And the idea of Gnosticism was in order to really, really, really understand God is you had to know him in kind of a secret way. Like there's a secret knowledge that not everybody else has, but that's how you have intimate knowledge with God. And it's this intimate knowledge you have with God that actually saves you. You see, what they would do is they say, um, they, they started with the premise. They kind of started with this premise and then used the Bible. And the, the premise was this, that all matter is evil. So that chair you're sitting in, evil. That body you're living in, evil. Anything physical in this world was evil. That They just decided that. And so if all that's physical is evil, then God is good, so he must be spirit. And so if my spiritual knowledge connects with God's spiritual knowledge, then that will save me from my evil body, from my evil world, from my evil mat matter that I, live, that I live in. And so out of Gnosticism and out of this belief, there, there comes two beliefs. And uh, they're both lies, and the, lie, the lies both center around uh, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The first one is this. It's uh, docetism. It comes from the, the Greek word dokio, which means to seem. And, and the argument was this. Jesus was never really human. He never really came in the flesh. He just seemed like he did. He really looked like it, but really he was just spirit. And, and so he, he was fully God, but he was not in any way fully human. And, uh, and he just seemed to do that, that kind of thing. Well, John has a big problem with that because he said, hey, I leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. I hugged Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I talked with Jesus. He was human. But, but that's the lie that's spreading around through the church. The second that has to do with Jesus, it's called Serinthianism, and it's, and it's this idea that Jesus was not fully God. In, in other words, the argument was, there was this guy, Jesus, he walked on the earth, Jesus of Nazareth, and at one point in time, maybe the Spirit of God attached itself to this man, and then, it, probably around when he was baptized, but surely the Spirit of God left this man before he was crucified, because God shouldn't be crucified, and so the argument that happened out of that was Jesus never was really fully God. He was hum fully human, but he wasn't fully God. And so the lie that goes back and forth, it's one of two, and when, has to do with who is Jesus. Was he fully human, and was he fully God? The problem is, if he is not fully God, then he cannot fully save us from our sins. 
He has no power. His crucifixion would be nothing. If he is not fully human, then he can't mediate for us. He has no idea what it's like to be us. He has no idea what it's like to struggle with temptation. He has no idea what it's like to fight against a world of sin. He was never human, so therefore he, we can never have an intimate relationship with this God. And so these ideas, they're going back and forth into the church. And this is what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus is Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. He just puts it out there. Anybody brings up any of those two ideas, guess what? You can recognize them as a spirit of the Antichrist. Is, that's, that's who's steering that conversation. Well, the second lie they have to deal with, it also comes out of Gnosticism. Because this belief was, if matter is evil, if this body is evil, if this world is evil, and my spirit is good, and my knowledge of God saves me, well, then it really doesn't matter what I do in the body. Because that's all going to hell anyway. And so, in Gnosticism, didn't matter if you drank, got drunk, didn't matter how much sex you had outside of marriage, didn't matter how high you got, how much you hurt other people, because it was in the body, As long as you believed and had the spiritual knowledge of God, it didn't really matter how you lived. You see, we face the same lie today, and it centers itself on how shall we then live. I mean, I'm willing to bet that maybe some of you in this room may think it it doesn't matter how I live as long as I believe in God. I can can do one thing and, and have my beliefs and celebrate that on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, well, that doesn't really matter. And John just says this in, in, in 3 John 1, the love, he says, anyone who does not, um, who does what is evil has not seen God. He would just say, you haven't really seen God, then have you? Or he'd say this in 1 John 3, 8, he says this, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I want to get something through your head this morning. Just hear me out. The devil is not God's enemy. He's ours. Let me just say that again. The devil is not God's enemy. He's ours. This is what I mean. He's not equal to God by any means. There is God Almighty and there is defeated devil. Boot ant. I mean, that's, that's the reality. There's not this yin and yang, this, this chaos and, 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 you know, him have the equal fight with God. He is the enemy of God's work. And God's work is us. He is the enemy of God's work. And so he's trying to stop God's work. But the devil has no power over Almighty God. He's just fighting to get our attention. And because God loves us so much, he's willing to send Jesus to stop the work of the devil. 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says this, You dear children, you are from God 
and have overcome them, being the world, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There, there's a, a Greek word there. I like the Greek stuff. It's, it's always interesting. There's the word overcome. It shows up. It shows up 24 times in the New Testament. John uses, uses it 21 of those times. The Greek word that reminds us that we have overcome, it's the word Nike. Some of you wear this on your feet as a reminder each week, and you don't even realize that it's a reminder that you are an overcomer if you have Christ. If we can be called children of God, then we have overcome because greater is he that lives in us than he that is in the world. You see, the reality is we we only have two enemies in this world, the devil and ourselves. And you may say, well, Tom, come on, that can't be true. I I mean, you don't know my story. You don't know so-and-so who way back when hurt me so badly, ruined the course of my life. And, And I'm not trying to take away from that. What they did was wrong, and they're accountable to it. But they're not the ones getting up with you each morning and trying to put guilt into your life over it. They're not the ones spending the day with you trying to to tell you that that somehow you were unlovable or unforgiven for it. That only comes from two places, the devil and ourselves. 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 7 says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we, can, if we claim to have fellowship with, with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, the son, purifies us from all sin. You see, just like God and Satan are not equal opposites, neither is light and darkness. In other words, if it's dark and light shows up, guess what? It's not dark anymore. There, there isn't like this line of, of light and darkness. If light shows up, there's no more darkness. And what John's saying is light has shown up. I, I want you to do this for a second. I want you to take your hands. Take your hands. Just, just place them over your eyes. Just place them over your eyes for a second. I, I'm willing to bet for most of you it just got kind of dark. But is it because we turned out the lights? You can take your hands off your eyes. No, the the sun didn't stop shining. The the lights didn't go out in this room. We just blinded ourselves. Because sometimes ourselves are our big enemy. Because light has shown up, John saying, light's shown up. So let's stop walking like we're in the dark. Let's stop blinding ourselves. If we want less darkness, then just let's take off the blinders and find more light because light is here, light is now, and there's only two enemies keeping us from it, the devil and ourselves. See, John has this issue. He says, you cannot believe one thing and then live out another. It's the, the controversy of orthodoxy, which is this correct thinking, and orthopraxy, how we live it out, how we practice. He says the two are intertwined. You can't have these values and this belief and, and, and this knowledge of God and yet live out a life that completely um, is different than somebody who knows that the two are interlined. And you may say, well, Tom, what about sin? I mean, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But I still screw up. What about that? Why do I do what I don't want to do? I don't even believe that that's the right thing to do. 
John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, I've talked to those people before. It says, I I don't come to church because at church there's hypocrites. There's all sorts of people and, and they talk about doing the right thing and then I watch them and they sin in their own life. And I'm here to tell you that, guess what? I'm not a hypocrite. Christians, I would say, are not hypocrites. We're just honest. We're just in agreement with God that we are sinners and we need a savior. And so we come in here this morning not to pretend we're something we're not. We're, we're here to speak the truth and say, yes, I have sin. My sin sucks. And I need a savior. And without him, I am des- I, I, I am lost. And so we come into agreement with God about our sin. First uh, John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. The, the Greek word there, um, it, it's for live, it's actually the same word as walk. It's the idea if we want to live as Jesus did, we have to walk like Jesus. And my question is, well, how then did Jesus walk? Did Jesus ever get knocked down? I think of the, the road to the cross. I, I think of that whenever I watch that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and, and watching Jesus get knocked down by this world. In fact, I think it's why Jesus died so quickly on the cross. They tried to kill him before he could even make it to the hill. That man took on more beatings, more persecution than than regular criminals because Pilate and the Roman soldiers, they didn't want a public spectacle up on a hill. They wanted to kill him before he got there, but Jesus in his human flesh knew he had to endure. He had to make it so that nails would go through his hands and that they would raise him naked as a public spectacle. Because that's what all the prophecies said about the Messiah. And if he was to show the world that he was the Messiah, he had to make it till it was finished. And so when Jesus got knocked down, you know the rest of it. He just got back up and kept heading in God's direction. And if we want to walk like Jesus did, it doesn't mean we're not going to get knocked down. And sometimes we cause it in our own sin. It just means as Christ's followers, we get back up. And we continue to head in God's direction. Well, John takes on these two lies within the church. And then he says, okay, that's the lies. Let me tell you the truth. And there's two things in particular that he focuses on in all three books. There there are two answers to the question of, of who is Jesus and how shall we then live. In fact, it's orthodoxy and orthopraxy intertwined. It's if you know this, then this is how you live. The two are inseparable. So, so what I want to share with you is two things John wants us to know about Jesus. The first is this. First John 4, 7 and 8. Here we go. Dear friends, that's for all you church people. All right. <laughs> all right. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Notice it does not say love is God. You see, God always defines what love is. 
But I think so many times we really want love to define God. In other words, we say, oh, I love that girl, so it must be of God. And, and God says, no, let me tell you what it means to love that girl. See, God defines love. And the interesting thing that exists in that verse is to know God is to love God. To love God is to know God. To know God is to love God. To love God is to know God. In other words, if you want to love God, get to know him. The more you get to know him, the more you will love him. And then Jesus, if he's the example of God in the flesh, if he is God, fully God, he's the definition of love, he is love. And so your first blank there is simply this, Jesus is love. And there's four things I want to share with you about what what we know that love is or love does, okay? So four things. The first is this, love explains 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, love explains. Love explains why God created us, why God cares about us, why God gives us choice, why God died for us. And why he wants to be with us. Love is the explanation. Love explains. Second thing we know love does. And John reminds us. Love saves. Love saves. 1 John chapter 3 verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Love is our pathway that saves us. From death, death eternal. You see, I think we struggle like this just like the Gnostics did. And really, I think in Christianity, there's these two, these two terms, these two things in our thinking and our doctrine that we just struggle with. And, and you really don't find them in any other religions. The first is unconditional love. I don't think we really know what that is. I think sometimes we experience it. Man, do we want it. And boy, do we know God has it. But it seems so foreign to us that we struggle with that. The other one is grace. To get a gift we don't deserve. We we don't live by that. It's not in our nature. We struggle with that idea, unconditional love and grace. And so, so I think over and over we find ourselves caught up trying to earn it. Trying to earn love, trying to earn this gift. And so we wrestle with this, struggle with this. But but John reminds us, you can't earn it. Love saves, and that's that. Third thing love does, love motivates. Love motivates. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. This is love. We know what it is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person. Now, now, Kurt, he read you that scripture earlier, but um, he did not give you the actual Greek, so I'm going to give you some of the Greek. I think the, the uh, King James Version says it uh, best. I think it's as how it actually says it. <laughs> Check this out. Whoever, this is verse 17, whoever hath words, the world's good, and seeth his brother in need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? There's this Greek word called splakna. It's a fun word there. 
And it talks about the bowels, the stomach, the intestines. Which seems strange to us, because we're like, isn't that a good thing to shut off up your bowels for someone? I mean, but, but you got to understand who he's talking to and in their culture, because there's something cool there. You see, we talk about love and, 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 and our heart and, and our seed of passions as heart. But the Hebrews and the Greeks, and they associated it with the stomach, with the bowels. They said, this is where you feel it. When you're in middle school and you see that cute girl, this is where you feel it. <laughs> we might call it gas, they call it love, but this is, this is where you feel it. You sense it in your gut. You know it in your gut. This is where the passions are sensed. This is where they're expressed. It, it was the day after Thanksgiving this year, and uh, my three-year-old son, Mason, I could hear him. It was, it was the Friday. He's, he's at, we're at Grandma and Grandpa's house. He's, he's running around with all his cousins. I mean, I hear him laughing. I hear him jumping. And then all of a sudden, I hear everybody go, ooh. And Mason had had a really big breakfast that morning. And he couldn't hold it in his guts anymore. And so he projectiled it out. And we were concerned all that day. Oh no, he's come down with the flu. Never threw up anymore. Went on the day like nothing else. Nothing was wrong. Nothing happened. He was just excited. (laughs) He was just excited. And he felt it in his gut. (laughs) And what John is saying when we know it in our guts and we still refuse to show love, how dare we say that the love of God resides in us? When we know it in our guts and we still don't love, how can we say that we have the love of God inside us? And Christian love then becomes more than a feeling. It becomes a choice and then an action. The fourth thing about love is this. Love identifies. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. How many of you in here have pictures of your children in your wallets? Yes, a lot of you. Yeah, I mean, we do that. And it doesn't take much for us to pull out the pictures of our kids and start talking about our kids does it? I mean, I, I love it. I mean, in a few weeks, the, our, our children are going to come on stage and do some singing. The best part of that, they do some great singing up here. The best part of that is watching you guys. Because um, you lose your mind, you know, your kids on stage. It's like CNN event is happening. Cameras come out and people are pointing, smiling. Because we love our children. Because they're ours. I want you to imagine that for a second. That perhaps God gets as excited about that when he sees us. And then times it a hundred. Because love identifies who our daddy is and whose, child, whose children we are. We, we have a, uh, a mission statement for our family. Something I'm trying to teach my two boys, they're three and five. My little girl just turned one yesterday. She doesn't quite get it yet. But, but it's, uh, there's three things. We talk about being goodlets. And, and uh, so we have a mission statement and it goes something like this. You know, we're goodlets. So, so we do three, make sure we do three things. We, we help people. We have fun, 
and we honor God. And so, and we go over this several times. And, and so the other day I had one of these proud parent moments where the little neighbor girl was over on her scooter and, and she, she fell off of it, skinned her knee right in front of her house. Next thing I know, my five-year-old, he's just booking it inside the house. You know, two seconds go by, he comes running back out with his Band-Aid. He brings it over to her, tells her how there's a special ointment on it that'll help heal her boo-boo. And uh, it starts putting on her parents are watching. I'm like, that's my boy, that's right, you know. Uh, <laughs> Taught him everything he knows, you know. And I mean, just one of those proud parent moments that helps the neighbor grow on. And so later on, I'm talking to Parker, and I'm like, Parker, I just want you to know, Daddy's so proud of you. So proud of you for what you, what you did for Cassie and her boo-boo. And he, he said, well, Daddy, I'm a good lit. <laughs> he said, and I help people like you do. Yeah. Love identifies who we are. Well, Jesus is love, and there's one other thing John wants us to know about Jesus. 400 years before Jesus shows up, there's this philosopher, you've probably heard his name, it's Plato. And Plato, he, uh, I mean, he's got quite a following. He, he, he kind of puts together quite an idea. And um, he, he says there's kind of almost two realms, if you would, or, or two kind of experiences or, or things here. Um, the, the first would be form, that what we experience on earth is best described as the form of something. And that what the true essence of what we experience, it, it exists in the separate realm in, in the world of idea or ideals. It, it would be something like this, that, that uh, let's say beauty. That somewhere beyond our reach, there is the essence of what true beauty is. What it means to be beautiful. Somewhere there's that ideal. But we don't see that. What we see is maybe a, a sunrise, a form, a form of beauty. And we say, oh, that's beautiful. But somewhere it's loosely connected or thinly connected to this idea of what true beauty is. We see a beautiful woman and we say, oh, that's beautiful. And, but somehow it's, it's loosely connected to, to this idea of what true beauty is. But that's not what we see. We know it's out there. It's beyond our reach. It's bigger. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia in his his book, The Last Battle. He talks about the old Narnia being wiped away. And all of a sudden there's this new Narnia that was always there, but you didn't realize it was there. And somehow the colors are deeper. The meaning of the world is deeper. Everything is more real. Everything is deeper. And this was just somehow a shadow of the real world. And so, so Plato, he, he pitches this philosophy to the, to the Greeks back then. And so about 400 years, over the 400 years before Jesus shows up, the, uh, the, what Plato, he, he leaves it at this. He says, there's got to be some sort of mystery connection, some sort of thin line from ideas to form, some sort of connection from the two realms, but it's beyond our reach. And so he, he didn't know what to call the mystery connection. And so he just left it at that. There's some mysterious connection between the, the two ideas, the two forms, the, the, the two worlds and realms and, and um and so over time, the, the Platonic philosophers, they, they came up with a word for it. They chose a word that already existed, had several meanings, and they just tied the meaning into it. It was the word logos. In fact, logos, one, one of its definitions is it describes kind of the, the in-between part from when you have an idea in your brain to when you actually form a word. It would be logic. From somehow there's a connection between that idea and how it comes out of your mouth as a word. And so eventually Logos just became known as word. 
John suggests something to his audience in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the logos of life. He says it even broader in his gospel in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, John says, I know the logos. I know the mystery connection that we've all sensed, but we didn't know what to call him. His name is Jesus, and he's holding it all together. Through him, all things were made. In him, all things hold together. He is the something more. He's not just a life bridge from from us on earth to God in heaven. He is the bridge. He's the reason we all yearn in our heart to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And through him, love, life, truth, they're all intertwined. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is the definition of love. And Jesus is holding for each and every one of us a life bridge, a connection that something that's been out of our reach for so long is all of a sudden right there for us to hold on to thanks to him. Jesus invites you into a connection with the God of the universe.